Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. We don't normally do a podcast based on a single article or piece of writing, but we're very happy to make an exception for today's episode. And that's because in the Hindu today we carried an article by Dr. Manmohan Singh, former Prime Minister of India. It's titled "An Unrest, a Slowdown, and a Health Epidemic." You can find it online on the Hindu's website, and we'll link to it, of course, with this podcast. So we're very happy to build on this article and explore some of the ideas that Dr. Singh writes about. And I'm joined today by Professor Irfan Nooruddin. who is the director of the South Asia Center of the Atlantic Council and a professor at Georgetown University. Um Irfan hi thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Right uh really great to speak to a political economist uh, to build on this piece by Dr Manmohan Singh. And um I think essentially I want to keep our analysis to a few points that he makes and that I really just want to expand on. Um I think the first point is that he notes that um there's been this persistent lack of investment in india and that's basically the root of the economic malaise that um, we find ourselves in despite the government claiming that there are green shoots etc this is this actually is the really persistent problem that people are scared of investing here um to what extent is that true in your analysis as well there's no question that he's right uh, of course you know under his leadership and even the previous prime minister under mr vajpayee's Uh, prime ministership india did begin to uh, position itself internationally as being a destination for foreign investment but the truth is that our we have underachieved if you look at china if you look at vietnam you look even at malaysia even maybe even at bangladesh you see countries that have moved up the value chain in terms of production uh, attracting foreign investment at a scale that is considerably larger than what india has been able to achieve and so the real question as dr singh forces us to think about is why that is political economists would suggest that for all the promises made what india has not been able to do is actually build investor confidence that our regulatory frameworks that our policy frameworks won't be won't, won't change overnight that investors having come into the country won't suddenly be subject to a completely new regime new sets of rules and then finally the underlying concern that india is going through a difficult period in its democracy in its social harmony and that contributes to a sense that there is a lot more policy uncertainty uh, than investors like i mean if there's one thing i would tell your listeners what investors hate most of all is uncertainty they are making long term plays and so they want confidence that nothing really significant is going to change next year 5 years from now 10 years from now and the longer you can assure them that things will stay stable the more likely they are to come in with big investments of the kind that india's economy needs okay and as i mentioned i want to focus on a very specific part of the article i think there's one para here that that you know that, that we really need to analyze it's where dr singh makes this correlation between an economy with a lack of trust and investment and social unrest that looms large if you'll allow me i'll just read out that particular uh, li- those particular lines he says uh, social harmony the bedrock of economic development is now under peril 
no amount of tweaking tax rates shabring of corporate incentives or goading will propel indian or foreign businesses to invest when the risk of eruption of sudden violence in one's neighborhood looms large now you know that um, from a common sense perspective yes this makes sense social unrest and economic development don't go together but you know is it is it, can this be empirically proven are there other case studies other examples that we can cite yes i mean the empirical evidence for this is fairly robust uh, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem a little bit of a causality problem if you would which is uh, how con- can we be confident that it is a instability that deters investment or is it in fact the lack of investment the lack of the jobs a worse economic situation that makes violence and social instability more likely to occur so acknowledging that the causality issue political scientists political economists have worked very hard on this question i mean and it's been a pretty well established finding now for i would say over 20 years uh, the seminal paper by alberto alessina the harvard economist with his colleague roberto perotti right demonstrated that social instability has a significant deterrent effect on foreign investment this has been replicated in case studies in different parts of the world large multinational quantitative data sets as well again it gets back to the point i made which is that investors abhor uh, uncertainty right in a sense to be quite cynical about it investors don't really care whether or not you know a minority group is being discriminated against or not i mean they go into china and you know no one's pretending like china's political climate and human rights record is anything admirable at all they want certainty so the problem with instability the problem with riots the problem with a sudden you know flare up of violence in which for three days as the capital city has a section of it that's burning is that it makes investors nervous because they're like if this can happen so suddenly what else could happen how could my investment be affected there's also a little bit of the mood what political scientists have documented is that uh investors often are protected right at the end of the day most foreign investors are going to locate in some special economic zone or something else that is pretty isolated and insulated from the kinds of violence of riots and all of that but if the national mood is such that the entire debate is about social harmony then investors worry that regulators that politicians won't be focused on the kinds of economic policy making on the kinds of reforms needed so in a nutshell dr singh is on firm empirical uh, footing to suggest that the social disharmony that seems to be becoming more common in the country right now will have knock on negative effects for foreign investment and for the economy as a whole and let's expand that concept to also talk about institutions now in order for sustained economic development to happen you know india does have some advantages we have a young population wide diverse markets we lack at, as dr singh says right at the moment uh, a sense of social harmony but he also makes a reference to the fact that um, institutions have failed that uh, the judiciary in some way has failed that the media has failed um, so can we expand on this on the basis of what we spoke about in the last question how how important are these having robust institutions also for investor confidence so they're very important uh they've arguably been one of the weaker parts of the indian political economy uh for quite a while i mean to be fair probably even through the prime minister singh's tenure uh, as prime minister 
take the judiciary, for instance, I mean, the fundamental role of the judiciary for investors, for the uh, economy, is that investors know that they can get recourse uh, to quick, easy contractual disputes, for instance, so that, you know, the rule of law dominates. You don't have to worry about jugard. You don't have to worry about, you know, uh, bribing somebody. You don't have to worry about finding a different uh, workaround for a permit that you are completely authorized to get. Our courts are overwhelmed, right? The average time to getting a judicial decision, to getting justice, if you would, is measured in years, even decades, not in months, not in weeks. And so this, the, the political, the governance institutions of the country have always needed a much greater investment in order to really unlock the investment that the country's economy needs. Uh, there is a concern that in the current moment, what we are also seeing is not just sort of a capacity issue, but in fact, a polarization issue, right? That uh, our judges, our courts, the media are becoming partisan in a way that means that investors and economic actors begin to doubt the quality of the data that are being received. If we can't trust the government economic data, if the government suddenly won't release survey data from the National Sample Survey, for instance, or won't conduct it, if we begin to worry about the GDP numbers, that saps confidence because no longer are investors share about what they're investing in. And so I will just suggest that, in fact, Dr. Singh arguably underplays that point. It is not just that in the current moment, the institutions might be undermining democracy. It is that for a long time now, they have been undermining economic growth. Land Pritchett famously referred to India as a flailing state, right? That the bureaucracy was large and cumbersome and got in its own way. Uh, Devesh Kapoor and others have made a similar point in thinking about the modern public institutions needing much greater capacity investment. And so this is a very significant point that Dr. Singh has raised. And I think Dr. Singh also, I mean, throughout his article, there runs the sense that you know, this is a very important uh, time for India economically because, you know, though though we have, though we're currently in a slowdown, there is this sense of opportunity that's opening up because um, the, the Chinese economy, which uh, might, is going through a slowdown of its own, it's the first time that their economy is contracting, I think, since the 1970s because of the coronavirus uh, spread. And he does say, he does say that you know, this could this could potentially open up an opportunity for India to unleash second generation reforms to become a larger player in the global economy. Now, according to you, you know, and also given the larger problems that he references, do, do you see that as a possibility or do you think we're still very far away from that? We're further away from it than I think we'd like to, well, than we'd like to be true. But he's right. I mean, this what's happened because of the terrible situation that China has faced from the coronavirus is that a lot of businesses are realizing just how vulnerable they had become to problems in China, right? That their supply chains, uh, that their, you know, the entire model on which their businesses had been built relied fundamentally on a functioning uh, economy in China. So a slowdown in China means that a lot of businesses are going to be looking at ways of diversifying their supply chains so that they minimize or at least reduce their dependence on China as a way of hedging against this kind of risk. 
In that sense, any country that is able to then offer itself as a low-cost, efficient, well-governed alternative to China stands to gain some of that investment as, again, I'm not suggesting at all that everyone's going to pull out of China. They're going to, but they're going to be looking for different, you know, ways to source materials, to source services. India should be in that conversation. But if we can't figure out the governance challenges, other countries will jump ahead of us in that queue. And you've seen that. I mean, just look at what has happened in Vietnam in the last 20 years. I mean, Vietnam has reinvented itself as a significant hub of foreign investment uh, all over the world. See what's happening in Nigeria right now, right? And so the fact of the matter is that the rest of the world is not standing still waiting for India to get its act together. There is a window of opportunity. It's an extremely attractive market with a highly educated young population. But the longer we wait, the the more opportunities are lost. And finally, Irfan, I mentioned that uh, Dr. Singh's article is one of the most read articles on our site today, possibly over the whole month. The Hindu does have a readership that is quite global, aside from having a strong readership in India. What would you say is the kind of global impact that um, an article like this by a former prime minister, somebody who has um, you know, been associated with economic reforms in India, can this have a real like, global impact, an article like this that's widely circulated? I believe so. I mean, it's not just a former prime minister. It is someone of the stature of Dr. Manmohan Singh. I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, with great respect to all the men and, and who have you know served as prime minister in the last 30 years, there is arguably none that has enjoyed the global sort of respect that Manmohan Singh did as a decent, kind, and also brilliant economist who was the architect of uh, the most significant economic reforms of you know, in modern India. The other thing about Dr. Singh is that for the most part, he has kept his counsel. He has not been in the news. He's not a newsmaker since he left office. Arguably, he didn't, you know, he tried very hard not to be the news even when he was the prime minister. He preferred to be quiet and to do the work. And so when he speaks, it carries weight. I compare him in that sense to President Obama now, in that a lot of times people would like Obama to be more, you know, vocal and more vociferous in condemning the president, President Trump. He's chosen not to do that. That is appropriate as the ex-president. But when he speaks, it carries impact. The same thing is going to be true. And the same thing is true of the piece that you, uh, the Hindu, has published by Dr. Singh. Around the world, I imagine there are going to be lots of people saying, if if it has gotten so serious that Manmohan Singh is willing to go on the record in a public op-ed and say these things, we have to pay attention. So I think this is going to be a very impactful op-ed by the former Prime Minister. Okay, Irfan, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for providing us so much time on short notice. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me.